You can turn over in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to finish this up today. Somebody asked me, why are we having communion every week? Because we're preaching on it. <laughs> so I thought, well, we use it as a good lesson. We missed a couple communion times together as a body of Christ when we were um, dealing with the COVID thing when it first started. So just uh, we're just making up for it now. And besides, the word says, do as often as you can. And so that's what we're doing. But uh, follow along as I read our text this morning. We'll be take, picking up where we left off last week. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what also I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks... He broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats... The bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then in all, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Well, we see here, we looked last week at this idea of communion, and we simply covered our first point, the perversion of it, what they did uh, to pervert it. They met in their own little groups, and they didn't really uh, uh, reach out to others, and they also simply were all about themselves. And that's not obviously what communion is to be about at all. And uh, they had... Divisions among themselves, they had um, issues going on they wouldn't share with anybody. All these were were issues around the communion table in the the church at Corinth. Well, today we pick up with the second point in our outline, the pattern, the pattern, what we're talking about here. And he says there in verse 23, if you look at that, he says, "For For I received from the Lord what also I delivered to you. Um, he's saying, what I have to say to you is not human opinion. I'm not making a suggestion here. It's not my own idea. What I have to say to you is not some tradition that we came up with that's been handed down from man to man. Paul is saying simply, what I have to say to you, I received from the Lord. And he instructed me to tell you this. In other words, it's, it's divine revelation that Paul received. 
Now, you have to understand that in your Bible, we have an order in the canon of Scripture, right? The first four books are the, the Gospels and goes on and on of the New Testament. Well, that's not the chronological order in which they were written. What you have to understand is what Paul was saying here happened before the Gospels recorded it, even though it was after Christ's death. These words haven't been written down yet by the Gospel writers. Uh, 1 Corinthians was probably written around, most experts say, around A.D. 55. And pretty much all agree none of the Gospels were written at that point. And so this was the first time that something like this had been written down, and, and it was Paul wasn't there in the upper room when, when Jesus met with his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed. He wasn't there. So he received this through divine revelation. And Paul had several encounters with the Lord concerning that. And so Paul must have gotten this from the Lord himself. That's why he makes that point. I received this not from somebody else. I received it strictly. I received it from the Lord. And I'm doing what he told me to do. I'm delivering it to you. And then it says there that, on, <clears throat> that, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. Paul's kind of painting a picture here for us of that last night that Jesus had with his disciples. And he's doing it in way of contrast. Sometimes the best way to see something good is what? To see something bad. Uh, That's why when you go to a jeweler and you look at a diamond for your wife or your husband, he comes out and what's he do? He puts it on a a black background, black piece of velvet. And when he puts that stone on there, what happens? It just makes it jump off the page in contrast to the black background. Well, that's what happens a lot of times throughout the gospel. And so Paul's painting a picture here of this wonderful ordinance of communion, of remembering Christ's death against the background, because he could have said on the night of Passover, he could have said the last time that Jesus met with his disciples, but he didn't say that. He says, the Lord on the night when he was betrayed. He's pointing out the ugliness of Judas against the glorious nature of Christ. And here at the cross, you have the Son of God dying for all those who would ever put their faith or trust in him. We believe it's a specific death. It's not a general death. If Jesus died a general death, if he died for everybody's sins, and God is a just God, then everybody would go to heaven because their sins are paid for. But see, Jesus died on the cross a specific death, meaning he died for you, he died for me. He died for all those who would put their faith, their trust in Christ. And he's giving us this picture of the Son of God dying for the sins of the elect around all of the hatred and the, the mockery and the rejection of Judas. And it makes that picture stand out even more. He describes the original Lord's Supper as 
conducted by Jesus in the upper room. You can read about that in the Gospels. But it wasn't just an ordinary night. It was the Passover night. It's when they were eating the Passover together. And, you know, as Gentiles, a lot of us don't understand this, but once a year the Jews celebrated the Passover. And the Passover was a memorial feast, a commemorative feast, you might say, that reminded all of Israel of what God had done for them when he delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians. You can read about it in the Old Testament. They'd been in bondage for over 400 years, and God delivered them. And you remember, there was a series of plagues that went on, and last of which was the plague of the death of all the firstborn. And God told Israel, you know what? You need to sacrifice a lamb and you take the blood and you put it over the lentil and on the side post of your home. So when the death angel comes out to slaughter all the firstborn as a plague to Egypt, if you have that blood on your doorpost, the angel of death will pass over you and your firstborn will not be killed. And so those, obviously, who were obedient to that, and there would be a lot of motivation to do that if you loved your child, uh, the death angel passed over. Hence, that's why we call it the Feast of Passover. And so he said, on that night, I want you to commemorate this. I want you to have a feast. Uh, I want you to eat a lamb. Slaughter a lamb and eat it. Cook it. Because that's what was required for the sacrifice. I want you to take some bitter herbs, or probably some, some form of, we can think of it as hors d'oeuvres or whatever, but some form of vegetables that were a little bitter, and they'd dip it in this sauce. And he'd, he wanted them to take some unleavened bread. The Jews call it matzah. And he instituted this feast. And it's been memorialized, it's been remembered right up until today. Um, most Jewish homes honor Passover, if they're any kind of conservative or orthodox Jew at all. So that was really the, the high point of the history of the, the religion of Judaism, and, and it was their Passover. And it basically celebrated the delivering power of God, that God would deliver these people from the Egyptians. It was God as their Savior taking them out of Egypt into the promised land. That's what it pictured. That's what happened. And when you think about it, it's really equivalent to us when we talk about the cross, isn't it? The Lord takes us out of the bondage of sin at the cross, and he takes us and transports us into the kingdom of his dear son. That's the parallel. It's the same God doing the delivering, doing the saving. Jesus was crucified on Passover because he is the ultimate Passover sacrifice. As a matter of fact, he's so ultimate, there's no other sacrifices after him. (laughs) He says it's finished, right? It's done. He was the ultimate sacrifice of deliverance. Now, before we get into this, you have to understand the, the order of the Passover meal at least a little bit of it. And they had four cups of wine. It would be red wine because it was symbolic of blood. 
And so they would have, you would arrive at the home, and the host would have a first cup of wine. It's called the cup of thanksgiving in Luke 22, and that would commence the evening together. And then they would have another cup of wine, and you would take your finger, apparently, and you would dip your finger into this cup, and you would take ten flicks to the plate, sprinkling the the wine on the plate ten times, and that signified the plagues, the ten plagues that they endured, that God uh, used to deliver them. And then the third cup is the cup that he's talking about here because it's the cup that's after the meal. So you would come in and you would have this table set up and after the meal, after you'd finish eating, you would have another cup, and that was called the cup of blessing, the third cup. And that signified the blood on the lentil and the doorposts. It reminded them of God's uh, sacrificial system, you might say. And then at the end of the whole evening, you would have, they call it the cup of praise or the cup of Elijah, and that would conclude their Passover meal. Um, but these these bitter herbs that were dipped in this fruit sauce kind of a thing, it really alludes to the back-breaking labor, they tell us, performed by the 600,000 Jews in Egypt. When they were working hard, they wanted something to, to remind of them that, so they eat these bitter herbs, and it reminds them of the bitterness of the labor that they had to endure under the Egyptian rule. So that was kind of the the overview of the Passover meal. Well, let's look here what, what the Savior did. In verse 23, he says, says that he, he held up the bread. It says, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is the ESV. All the modern translations say, which is for you. Um, the King James, the New King James, which is the majority of the text, by the way, says, which is broken for you. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. So not all translations have the word broken in there. It says he broke the bread, but then he says, this is my body. The modern translations say, which is for you. The King James says, which is broken for you. Uh, The Egyptian manuscripts, by the way, that's where it's not found, that word broken. But it really fits. I think it should be in there because it fits the illustration of the Passover, of what was going on here. Because you have to understand, at the Jewish Passover meal, at the beginning of the meal, there was always a a table with a beautiful cloth on it. And the host would have basically a stack of matzah, which is unleavened bread. And um, they would have the stack of three pieces of matzah in the middle of the table on this beautiful tablecloth. And the host would always take the one in the middle, I couldn't figure out why. Nobody's told me why. I, nobody seems to know why. But they don't take the one on top. They don't take the one on the bottom. They take the one in the middle. They always take the number two piece of matzah. And the host would break it before, you know, as they, they, after they had their, their first cup there. And he would break this, this matzah. And uh, basically the larger half of the, wherever he broke it, becomes what they call their dessert, afikomen. And what they do, the host gives it to one of the youngest children who's at the table, and he tells him he puts it in a special cloth or a napkin, and he says, here, go hide this. 
That's just their tradition. And they hide it somewhere simple so they could find it because they want their dessert. Matzah is not much of a dessert, so I don't know. But it's just it's the way they, they did it. And uh, so they would have this stack of matzah. They would take the number two one. He would break it. And the larger piece would go with the younger child, and he would hide it somewhere in the kitchen or whatever until it was time to find it. And basically they would have their meal together, and they would have other matzah there as well. Um, and the, the reason they use matzah, by the way, is because it doesn't have any uh, yeast in it. You know, with this cracker or with wafer wheat, this, it's, there's no yeast in it. So sometimes you have some churches that, you know, they'll have communion and they'll have a loaf of bread. Nice, warm, big. That doesn't really fit the illustration. Because to have a nice, poofy, warm loaf of bread, what do you need? You need yeast. What does yeast represent in the Bible? Sin. So if you're representing Christ's body, the last thing you want is a representative of sin, which is yeast. That's why the matzah crackers we use or these things, you know, there's no taste to them. It's just, it's just bread without yeast. And it says, even in Mark chapter 8, verse 15, and Matthew 16, 6, the gospel saying, he was giving orders to them, Jesus was saying this, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and even the leaven of Herod. So whenever Christ spoke of leaven, it was not in a positive thing, because it was representative of sin. Galatians 5.9 says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. You don't need a whole lot of leaven to make a loaf of bread. You know, you just got to mix it up well, and it permeates the whole thing. That's, and it's representative of sin in the Bible. That's why it's so important as a church that we understand that corporately we want to be pure. We want to be holy. That's why it matters how you live when you walk out of this building because you're still part of the church, the greater church of Christ, and even the local church here. One commentator pointed out that if you ever look at a, a regular piece of matzah, not a little wafer like this, but the regular, you, you buy it in the store, uh, he pointed this out. He says, you'll notice that, first of all, there's no yeast in it. But then you'll notice that there's stripes on it. You ever see that? And it's, it's caused from them pressing it. And he just draws the illustration. It's interesting that it's by his stripes we were healed. So it's even representative that way in an indirect way. And then he points out that if you hold a piece of matzah up to the, the light, you can see through the holes. There's, there's holes in that matzah. Because when it's baked on the, the griddle, apparently it... It, it causes a bunch of holes in the matzah. And that's a reminder also that he was pierced for our transgressions. And so there's a lot of illustrations here in the communion table, the illustrations of our Lord. But at this point, the host would take that middle matzah, he breaks it in half, the smaller piece goes back in with the remaining two, and the larger half becomes this dessert that the child goes and hides. And they'll eat it later at the end of the meal. And by the way, when they get, they go and get that piece, you know what they do? They take that one piece that was hidden, he brings it back to the table, and not all of them hide it. Some of them, um, at some of the meals, they'll set it right next to the host, and then throughout the meal, the, the child has to steal it without anybody noticing. So it's kind of a game they turn it into, you know. And none of that's really in the Bible. It's just part of their tradition. But it helps us understand what was going on here. And so after the meal, they would have the afikomen, which is the dessert, and they would pass this around. They'd break a little piece off, and they would pass it around. Now, I tell you all that because it's very important because 
when it says here that his body was broken, when he says that, uh, he says he broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you, which I would say that's what it means, which is broken for you. Um, He's not talking literally about broken bones. Okay, he's talking about his death figuratively. Because the body would, in Judaism, and in most cultures, refers to the whole man. I mean, if you have a body, then you have a, you have a human. What was that? You have a human, and so you have you know, things that are going on that, that uh, represent a human being. And so it refers to his, his death. It doesn't refer to his legs being broken or anything like that. Some people say, well, his body wasn't really broken. That's why it's not in there. No, it really is broken. He died. <laughs> okay, he died. None of his bones were broken, Scripture says, but it refers to his death. And so when you, in the Passover, when you pass around that afikoman at the end of the meal and you break off a piece of that, you're dealing with a, a bread that was already broken. You're not breaking it again. You're just breaking off a part of it. And it's signifying your participation in his death, what has already happened. You know, the Bible says that when Christ died, we died with Christ. We were buried with Christ. We were raised in newness of life, in Christ. Our life as Christians is in Christ, in Christ alone we sing. And so he took the the bread and he broke it. And then it says he held up the cup down there further. The same way he took the cup. And notice what it says, after supper. That's why we know it's the third cup. He says, after supper. He broke the the bread, verse 24. This is my body. The other thing I want you to notice here, and it's, it's a small little words here in the English. This is my body. See where he says that? Well, that's one word in the original language. And it doesn't mean this is literally my body. <laughs> He's not saying this is literally my blood. This is where, unfortunately, the Roman Catholic Church and some others get this all wrong. So they need a priest to stand behind an altar and bring Jesus out of heaven and sacrifice him anew on the altar so that he can say that, well, now we have the blood of Christ by what they call transubstantiation. The priest has a supernatural power to turn the wine into the literal blood of Christ. That's what they believe this teaches. But it doesn't teach that. They have a misunderstanding here. They've decided to make this literal. And even back in... Jesus' day, the Jews believed the same thing when he would talk to the Pharisees. They said, well, wait a minute. How, how are we going to, you know, eat his body? They didn't understand it either because they were not defining it spiritually. They were defining it literally. But this word, estina in the Greek, it really means that not a physical, literal sense, but a spiritual sense. What he's saying is, figuratively, this is what I mean. This is what it represents. 
Um, We know this to be true because it's the same word that's used in John 10. In John 10, what does Jesus say? He says, I am the door, right? Well, he's not saying he's physically a door. (laughs) I mean, that would be ridiculous, right? That's not what he's saying. It's the same word that's used there. He's saying figuratively, I am the door. I'm the savior. I'm the shepherd of the sheep. I represent a door into the sheepfold. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying this represents my body, this bread that we're about to partake of. And this cup, it represents my my blood. How do we know it wasn't Jesus' blood he was talking about literally? Where was Jesus' blood? In his veins, right? I mean, he didn't die yet. And his body was sitting there with them. They weren't, you know, chewing on a piece of Jesus' arm. That's not what happened. That's not what they what Jesus meant. And so we're not talking here about literal things. But notice here also he says, which is broken. And then two other little words that you can't miss. You can miss if you just read it over. He says, for you. See that? Isn't that amazing? For you. My body, which is for you, or broken for you. Do you ever stop and ask yourself why Jesus went to the cross? He went to the cross for you. Do you ever stop and ask yourself why Christ lived on this life for 30-some years as the God-man and put up with everything he put up with? He did it for you. He endured all the stripes, all the mocking, all the hatred, all the pain physically. He endured the separation from his father spiritually, which was far greater than any physical stuff that he went through. And he did it, the Bible says, for you. Now, you have to believe in that sacrifice. That's what we're called to believe in, right? Doesn't mean anything if you don't believe in it. Look what he says here concerning the cup in verse 25. He says, This cup is the new covenant between God and you, sealed by the shedding of my blood. Same way after also took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood covenant or testament do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me you can read about this in jeremiah chapter 39 it tells you all about this new covenant that day when god will take away the sins of his people and cleanse them forevermore i mean what do we call the books in the Protestant Bible that are on the right. What do we call them? The New, the new Testament, the New Covenant. Okay. When you go and you buy a house and you sign a mortgage, or when you go for a loan and you sign, what are you doing? You're testifying to something. You don't just, you know, yeah, okay. I'll make the payments, no problem. No, they want, they want something written on paper. When you go and you sign for a package at the post office, what do they do? 
They require you to sign something. They don't let you sign with pencil. They, they make you sign with ink. Permanent. See, that's what Christ did on our behalf. When he died, he created this new covenant. Because the Old Testament is what? The Old Testament was based on God's law, right? Isn't that right? Okay. And the New Testament is based on God's what? No. (laughs) His blood. His blood. I know that's kind of a trick question, but it's based on his blood. It's, it's, it's uh, given to us by his grace, right? Grace provides it. Grace provides our salvation, but it's paid for through the blood of Christ. When Moses gave the law to all the people, you remember what he did? God had him sacrifice all these animals, put all the blood in big basins, and then sprinkle the people with all the blood. It's like a bizarre thing, right? I mean, that would be disgusting. Why, though? Because that's the substitutionary system that God set up in his word and in his creation. All things are cleansed with blood. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned, what'd they do? They went and got some fig leaves, right? Well, that wasn't sufficient. That wasn't good enough to cover them. So what happened? There was an animal that was slain, and the skin of the animal was their clothes. Blood had to be shed. As a matter of fact, even in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it tells us this, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood... There is no forgiveness of sin. So you can't keep the law. The law wasn't given to you to keep it. The law was given to you to show you your inadequacy before a holy God. So that you'll look at the law and go, there's no way I could do this, God. Exactly. You're not doing what I'm telling you to do. Therefore, you're what? You're sinning. You're in a state of sin. You've violated God's word. You've violated what God has instructed you to do. The Bible says the soul that sins must what? Must die. There has to be a judicial answer here. And so the sacrificial system showed us the only way to God is sacrifice. Since sin has to be paid for. And so the death of an animal for what you've done wrong in the Old Testament is that substitutionary system. But it relates to our Messiah thousands of years later because he died for us. That's why we don't have to go and bring, you don't have to bring your lambs in here and we don't have an altar and we don't have to slaughter them every week. I mean, praise the Lord, right? I mean, some of you people love animals. We really have a tough time in the Old Testament, I'll tell you. But you know what? That's what God required. Whenever I think of that, I think of poor Ken and his, his cleaning company. You know, what, what it would be like every week? They'd have to clean up that mess. Big money. Yeah, big money. You know, hazmat suits and all kinds of stuff. I mean, it would be, it'd be crazy. 
But see, the point is, is that Christ died in our place, so we don't have to continue this sacrificial uh, offering of animals. But you have to believe in his sacrifice. That's what we're called to believe in. As a matter of fact, in Israel, in the nation of Israel, if you refuse to bring a sacrifice for your sin, say you're an Israelite and you said, you know what, I'm not going to do it. God requires it, but I'm not going to do it. Basically, the scripture says that you were cut off forever for willfully sinning against the Lord. In other words, the Lord said, okay, I know you got sin. Here's how you deal with it. If you're not willing to do that, you're cut off. There's no hope for you. I mean, that's what Hebrews chapter 10 is talking about. A lot of people get hung up with Hebrews chapter 10. You can turn over there if you want. Verse 26 to 31 there. Some people misunderstand this, but the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10, 26, it says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So some people say, well, that must mean you can lose your salvation. No, that means you never had it. Because look at what happens. Verse 27, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies, how? Without mercy, on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And he reminds us it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What's that saying? That's saying, you know what? If you're not going to look to Christ and the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, guess what? You're not going to get any forgiveness, period. Because that's the only forgiveness there is. That's the only place to go is the cross of Christ. We need to remind ourselves of these things. So this new covenant in his blood is a new agreement that he took care of for us. And he says there at the end of verse 25, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of of me. Now this isn't talking about some kind of, you know, oh yeah, that, that, that cross thing that happened. No, this is talking about a remembrance that comes through personal experience. You know, it's one thing to remember something, right? But it's another thing, oh yeah, I remember that. <laughs> Why? Because you experienced it. You, you understand it thoroughly. That's what he's talking about there. Do this in remembrance of me. He's not saying do this as just something you do in church once a month on the first Sunday of the, week, of the month. He's not saying do it as a result of trying to earn your salvation. Don't do that. He says do it as a remembrance of me, of Christ. 
See, a lot of people have communion all messed up. They think that somehow this is a means of God's grace, that somehow if they just partake of communion once a month, they're good to go. No. This has absolutely nothing to do with your salvation. All it is, it's, it's a memorial. It's a, it's a symbol. It's a way of looking back at what Christ has done for us. And that talks about the purpose here. It serves as a backward look to the cross. Verse 26. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim what? The Lord's death. If Christ hadn't died, guess what? He wouldn't have risen. And guess what? We wouldn't have had had salvation. He needed to pay for our sins. He needed to go to the cross. He needed to take upon himself, the sinless Son of God, all the sins of all those who would ever profess Christ as their Lord and Savior, and thereby pay their penalty because they can't do it. And so that's why we proclaim, that's why we want to talk about the death of Christ to people. It also serves as an inward look to the conscience. Look at what it says there in verse 28. Anyone who has, uh, or verse 28, sorry. Let a person examine himself, then and so eat of the bread and, and drink of the cup. This gives us pause. This gives us time to stop and to say, okay, This is not just a a mere glance at your life. It's exactly what it says it is. It's an examination. You know, if I gave you a spreadsheet and said, here, examine this, you wouldn't just go, yep, okay. You wouldn't do that. You would say, wow, this may take me a little bit of time. Take all your time you want. I want a thorough examination of this spreadsheet. And you would come back with a thorough examination of the spreadsheet. See, it's not a casual glance. It's something that when you pause, you're, you're looking deep into your heart. You're, you're saying, do I really understand what this communion thing is about? Are my motivations in taking communion pure and holy? Or has some weird thing kind of come into my thinking? Like I'm earning my salvation through communion. Or it's just something we do, and I don't even really think about it eat the cracker, drink the thing, say the prayer, let's get out of here. See, this is a very serious time. It looks back to the cross. It it looks inward to the conscience. You want to examine yourself. But it also looks forward to the crown. Verse 26, until he comes, it says, Until he comes. So you look back to the cross. You look at your own heart, your own conscience, and you also look forward to when he returns. And he says, that's how often you should do this. You you don't have to be in a church to have communion. Some people think that. They they did it in houses. (laughs) Daily, almost. So it's purpose was threefold. And then you see the penalty here, beginning in verse 27. He says, whoever, he's kind of wrapping things up here, and he, he says, listen, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. 
What he's, who's he talking to? He's talking to believers here. Sometimes in churches, not so much this church, but I've been in churches where, you know, after communion Sunday, someone will come up to you and say, oh, did you see so-and-so took communion? I don't even think they're a believer. <laughs> well, first of all, it's none of your business. Why are you looking at them during communion? I mean, why, why are your eyes focused on somebody else? You know, that, that's, that's the wrong motive to be involved with when you're taking communion. You should be examining your own heart, not examining your neighbor's heart. And even if an unbeliever did take communion, it's not like some lightning bolt's going to come out of heaven. This message is for believers, beloved. Don't take it in an unworthy manner. It's talking of an, a believer who partakes in an unworthy manner is guilty and risks punishment or chastisement. What's it mean you're, you're guilty of it? In other words, you're, you're, if you're not taking part of communion with the right motivation and a spiritually pure heart, if there's some hidden agenda or you think you're earning your salvation through communion or, or anything else, it's just become a tradition to you. What he's saying is you're just as bad as the guys that put Jesus on the cross. You're just as guilty as them. And so he says, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So you drink to eat and drink God's judgment on oneself. Notice it says there we are judged of the Lord. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. What's interesting is there's a couple words at use here. Um, the word for judged or chastised or disciplined is krema in the original language. It's used some 13 times. And it speaks of, of chastisement. It speaks of discipline. It's used in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 to 11. I'll just read it for you. You don't even have to turn there. It says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My sons, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. That's the, the word, krema. Nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Same word. And chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Well, today, <laughs> you look at society, you could probably say a whole bunch, but back then it probably wasn't as the case. And that's usually not the norm. A father does discipline their children. Verse 8, if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who discipline us and, re, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Verse 10, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Why does God discipline his children? To make them holy. 
to help them with their sanctification, to help them become more like Christ. Verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The writer of Hebrews is saying, look, don't discount that God disciplines his children. And as his children, we should welcome it. God is cutting the rough edges off, making us more like Christ. And so he he wants us to clearly understand that. And if you don't, there's consequences. There's a penalty here. He says in verse 29, therefore, whoever eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Discipline, chastisement. Someone once asked me, well, if you take, partake of the communion table in an unworthy manner, do you lose your salvation? No. We're going to see here in a second why that's not the case. This is talking about the Lord's discipline on our lives. In the penalty there, verse 30, this is why many of you are weak and ill. <laughs> That's part of the penalty. They, they, they grew sick. They became physically ill. You can see that sometimes in believers' lives, by the way. Believers that are not doing what the Lord tells them to do. They're living a willfully disobedient life before the Lord in their life. It's just horrible. I mean, with illness after illness after illness. Now, we're not called to judge people just because somebody's sick doesn't mean they're sinning. But in this case, in Corinthians, it was the case. They were, they were not participating in the Lord's Supper in a way that was honoring to the Lord, and therefore he was divinely judging them, disciplining them, and the results were sickness. Some of them got weak. Some of them were mildly sick. Others, it says that God killed them. It says some of them sleep. Some of them have died as a result of not taking the communion table in a serious manner. Matter of fact, the Greek here, we don't see it in our English language necessarily. But when it says there, um, and some have died, literally it, it means a good number died. Not, we're not talking one or two here. We're talking enough that Paul mentions it. One commentator I listened to said, you know, he thought it was interesting about this seriousness of communion and actually death occurring. And he pointed out the fact that maybe Ananias and Sapphira died at a communion service for falsely representing what they were giving to the church. Wow. Kind of sobering, isn't it? That this is not a lighthearted moment in, our, in the time of our church. This isn't a time where we just go, yeah, drink the wine, and eat the crack or whatever. No. It's a very serious thing that the Lord has put before us. 
God took these people out because there's a certain evil of coming to the Lord's table in an irreverent manner. Well, we also say here that there are some profits or benefits. Verse 31, it says, But if we judged ourselves truly, we examined our own selves, we would not be judged. So as believers, if we look at our own heart and we understand, wait a minute, I'm in Christ. He paid for my sins. And yeah, I don't live a perfect life. None of us do. So what does the Bible instruct me to do? When we sin, what are we supposed to do? Confess our sins, right? Say the same thing God says about our sins. See, becoming a Christian doesn't mean you're going to be a perfect individual. You're never going to sin again. As a matter of fact, it's probably tougher after you become a believer because then you realize all the sins that are in your life. And you know what? It doesn't stop. The closer you become to Christ, the more you see your own sin, the more you feel inadequate, the more you realize that, wow, I don't deserve this. What's interesting is that word, crema, that talks about judgment here. It says there in verse 32, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. So it explains the word judged. It's talking about Christians. But then it says this, so that we may not, what? Be condemned along with the world. world. That word is katakrima, which means extreme judgment for those who are outside of Christ, obviously. So when we're judging ourselves and, and we're examining our own hearts, we want to do everything possible to come to this table with a pure heart. but also with the understanding that no Christian at no time under no circumstance will ever be damned along with the world. Because it says we may not be condemned. Why? Because Christ paid for our sins. They're done. It's complete. As long as you're holding on to his sacrifice, you're holding on to Christ, there's no way, my friend, that you will ever experience the eternal judgment of God in hell. Verse 33, so when you come together, my brothers, this is how your life is to be fleshed out within the church. When you come together to eat, wait for one another. That's a nice way of saying be patient with each other as believers. And not just in the area of eating, just in general. Be patient. They were having an issue here around the meal. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. In other words, we don't come here to fill our stomach. You know, it would probably be a little different in our church if it, on Communion Sunday we had a huge feast, like turkey and ham and all kinds of stuff, right? He's saying, stop, I'm getting hungry. All right. But you know what I mean? A huge meal. And we did it specifically on Communion Sunday. I guarantee you some people come for the food. I mean, we, 
before the COVID thing, we had food every Sunday. So it, it, it breaks down. The illustration breaks down because people always come for the food. No, just kidding. But it, it's important that, you know, we have fellowship and things like that. But see, here we, we just have communion. We're not here to fill our stomachs. He says, so when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Deal with that. Examine your heart at home. Examine your heart before you partake of. And then apparently they have some other issues that we'll get into in chapter 12. He says, about the other things, I will give directions when I come. There were some other things that Paul needed to address with them. The list was long. (laughs) That's why it was a troubled church. But you know what? There was still hope. I mean, maybe your life is filled with trouble. Maybe your life is filled with sin right now, and you're holding on to Christ. It happens. The Bible says you need to confess that. You need to repent. You need to come back to the cross and say, Lord, I know that you've forgiven me for this. Help me to live by the Spirit and not the flesh. Help me to do the right thing as I live out this Christian life each and every day that I may be able to proclaim the life of Christ, his death, until he comes in a way that's authentic, in a way that's real. I trust that all here are trusting in the grace of Christ, in the grace of our Lord and Savior. Because if you're not, you, you don't have any hope. There's no other sacrifice to be made for you. You can't make any, nobody else can make any on your behalf. You have to put your faith, your trust, you have to believe the gospel that Jesus died in your place for your sins. And you cry out to him and you say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. I guarantee you, he will answer that prayer. And he will save you. He will transform you. He will give you the grace you need to bring you into right standing with your creator, God. Let's bow in a word of prayer. And I hope you have your communion thing. If not, you can go and grab it real quick. And we'll just partake of communion right now. And then we'll have one last song. In the New Testament, it says, after they finished the supper, they sang a hymn and they went out. And so we'll, we'll sing a song here at the end. Father, we thank you for this time of communion that we can come before you as the church, as those that profess the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Lord, we examine our own hearts first. We, we come before you and we acknowledge that, Lord, we don't always do the right thing. Father, sometimes we make poor choices and we make sinful choices. But Lord, we're so thankful for your grace. We're so thankful for the cross of Christ. We're so thankful for his blood that covers our sin, that takes it away, that cleanses us from it. We're so thankful that we don't have to sacrifice animals week after week looking forward to that ultimate sacrifice. But as believers in this time and age, we can look back acknowledging the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf. And Father, we... We just acknowledge to you our love for you, our gratitude for your grace, for calling us to be the person that you desire us to be in Christ. And Lord, as we hold this cracker in our hands, Father, your word says that on the night that Christ was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And it represents your body, Jesus, hanging on that cross.
and the payment that was paid. And we thank you for that. And Lord, we pray that you would bless this to our bodies as we partake together. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, your word says on the same night you took the cup and you blessed it. And Lord, we know that this represents the new covenant, the, the signed deed to our souls. It was signed with your blood and we thank you for that. And Lord, we just pray that you would um, bless this cup as we partake together as your people. In Jesus' name. Amen.